Welcome to the Instructional Redesign Podcast. Today, our guest is Jeff Batt. Jeff is the owner of Learning Dojo, where he has produced over 15 self-paced courses on topics related to e-learning, mobile, and web development. To date, he's had over one and a half million students. He also shares lots of helpful info and how-to videos on his Learning Dojo YouTube channel. Also in October of 2021, Jeff took on the role of program manager at the Learning Guild. Welcome, Jeff, to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I'd like to start just by hearing about your background, but I know you're a big comic book fan, so I'll phrase the question like this. What's your origin story? <laughs> That's a perfect fitting for it. So yeah. um, I started as a web developer, um, so I graduated as a web developer um, a while back ago and got a job at an e-learning um, software company similar to what well, I would compare it to like Rise right now, where it was just like an online software company. Um, and I started working as a salesperson and started working with um, st building templates and designs for them and doing some of their marketing, helping out with conferences that they were running as well, and just fell in love with the with this industry and started uh, developing my own creations and then started, uh, um, I actually had a job at eLearning Brothers for about a year. It wasn't very long, but it was in their early days and helped them build their template library. And then moved over to uh, my church headquarters uh, as well. Got a job there and started working there and managing a, a custom development shop and and helping instructional designers and e-learning developers build content. And eventually wound up here at uh, the Learning Guild. So, and then you know throughout that whole time, I was building training. I wanted to. My initial goal was to like get out of debt, student loans. So right. I started building like online training for Storyline and uh, some other just regular web programming um, topics and eventually started building that out more. So that's where Learning Dojo kind of came into play. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing um, wanting to get out of debt, what, what that can motivate. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk a little bit about your role with the Guild. What, what do you do there and, and what are your responsibilities? So my role, I'm a couple months in now. So my role is a program manager over DevLearn. So DevLearn, if for those of you who don't know, is a large uh, learning and development conference that's held in Vegas every October. Uh, the Learning Guild kind of, or the Learning Guild has a couple different conferences that they host. That That's one of them. Another one is Learning Solutions. And so my job, uh, I help out with the programming for all the different conferences. But once the programming is kind of settled for a conference, my job is to be the main contact for that conference. And um, if we need different sessions or uh, working with the different speakers as well, that's really where my job comes into play. Very cool. Yeah, it's one of my favorite conferences, and uh, I hope to make it out soon, maybe as soon as 2022. We'll see. Yeah, they did it. They had it in uh, 2021 as well. And so that was an interesting, it was really awesome to be back. It was interesting to be at a conference with masks and and stuff and doing like the health checks in the morning. But we mm -hmm. did get a lot of compliments saying that they felt those who attended felt really safe. Um, oh, that's good. You know, considering everything that's going on right now and still going on, um, they mm -hmm. just they felt like it was a safe environment and um, they were able to participate and just everyone was just really excited about being there. 
If I remember correctly on social media, I think what I saw was that you all used uh, different colored wristbands that people could mm -hmm. wear to denote kind of their comfort level of being close to people. I thought that was a really brilliant move from the guild and could understand why people felt very comfortable being in a space with being able to set those expectations without having that awkward conversation of don't give me a hug, no offense, right? Look at the yeah. color of my wristband. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there there's a lot of compliments on that. I had no say in that because I came I came in like three weeks before the conference even happened. But um, but yeah, there was these signs everywhere that had either green, yellow, or red, and green meant that you're comfortable, you know, handshaking and and saying hi. Everyone still was wearing masks and everything, but then yellow was like, hey, you know, let's let's elbow bump, um, but not anything with like hand contact, and then the the Sorry, green was like hugs as well. And then red was like, okay, I'll wave to you from a distance kind of thing. So, and the room setups were, were very similar as well. Um, I mean, very similar to what they had been in the past, but the difference this year is because there was a little bit less in attendees, you had plenty of room to spread out. So you could sit with your group and those that you were comfortable with. But if you um, wanted to sit of, uh, apart from other people, you could do that without feeling like people could actually, or people coming up and sitting right next to you that you don't know. Yeah, like Joe, I'd say the that DevLearn is probably one of my favorite conferences. And I know every time I see you at a conference, Jeff, we share a common love for the Nectar of the Gods, Dr. Pepper. <laughs> so we like to share a nice Dr. Pepper at, at various events. So I'm just curious, now that you've kind of get acclimated to your role, I know you haven't went through your first DevLearn. Have you went through your first DevLearn yet? Yeah. I mean, okay. I came in a couple of weeks before the gotcha. first DevLearn, so I really had nothing to do with it. Um, I was, I just showed up and helped where I could, but I didn't okay. do any type of the uh, planning or anything like that. All right. Sorry. So I misspoke. So that's bad on me. But um, mm -hmm. one thing that I, I'd like for you to talk about it, if you feel comfortable doing this is, you know, what do you see the value of going to conferences for, for even just attendee or a speaker? I think that, you know, especially in the last year, there's a lot of new faces in learning and development and they may kind of be on the fence about, should I go to a conference? Should I try to speak um, from your perspective? What, what are the benefits of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, early on, I, like I mentioned, I worked for this company called Rapid Intake and they hosted a conference, which was a smaller conference. I think they got up to about 400 people at the most. So compared to like DevLearn, DevLearn is, you know, I think their highest was like 4,000 or so. So it was this much smaller conference, but um, they, I, I really fell in love with just, you know, speaking. And that's where I realized that I, I love to teach and I love to share ideas and and um, just, you know, talk about things that I'm doing to, to help other people as well. And um, it kind of allowed me to hone my craft and to get to know other speakers. It, it allowed me to um, get a little bit more exposure as well. I mean, this was a, a local conference that I was helping out with. And that's where I met someone that uh, eventually became my boss as well. Um, like I mentioned at my church headquarters. Um, and so it's, it gets you that exposure, it gets you that experience, but also I think when you teach something, you actually get to know that content better. So if I'm going to, uh, if I'm learning a subject, for example, I, I like to dabble in different areas and I'm learning how to do Swift coding, um, Swift UI, which is the, uh, Apple programming language. Um, when I share about that and I, I share that to, or I post a video or something like that. 
it helps me kind of internalize what I'm learning. And when I have to explain it to somebody else, um, I think it helps solidify that knowledge. And so, and I, I think that's what conferences do is you get those social connections, you get to meet with other speakers, you get to share ideas. There's countless times where I, you know, I went to Nick Floro, who's we, I've seen him at different conferences for years. And a lot of, when I was running the, my custom or the custom development team, um, I would go to him and I would say, Hey, Nick, what do you, you know, cause he's been doing custom development for a long time as well. And I was wanting to go beyond just standard e-learning tools. And I was wanting to build uh, a course that was just all custom HTML because there's really no limits if you're using HTML. Um, and I was, I was getting some feedback from Nick and he had a lot of good feedback uh, to share. And so just those kinds of experiences that you can get just by talking with other people, by talking with speakers, getting that one-on-one -on -one time with speakers as well, um, by sharing what you know and just kind of solidifying what you know as well. Those are all things that I just, you know, the reason why I fell in love with conferences and I've been going to DevLearn for years. And when this opportunity came up, I, I jumped on it because I just, because of that, that passion for sharing and, and uh, helping out with conferences. So you mentioned custom development and it's one of the reasons I admire you and your work is, is um, the stuff you, you put out on your YouTube channel, walking people through how to create certain things, but also in your portfolio, I can see that at least all the examples that I saw were custom HTML courses. So yeah, I would still classify them as e-learning, but they weren't built with um, an e-learning authoring tool. Can you summarize your process for what you would even do to, to create a course like that, not using an authoring tool? Yeah. I mean, my background, like I mentioned, is I'm a web developer, but um, I graduated when Flash was a thing. So <laughs> most of my web development classes were actually based on Flash. So uh, soon after I graduated is when the Steve Jobs um, letter posted about not iOS devices not supporting Flash. And so it, it almost had to do like I almost had to do like a shift into HTML and CSS and stuff. But back then, there were a lot of instructional designers and e-learning developers that were, were completely fine with developing content in Flash, um, using ActionScript and other things like that. And it seems like they kind of, after that, um, Flash kind of went away, people kind of backed out from it. But I, I was feeling, when I was running this custom shop, we were feeling the strain of e-learning tools and their limitations and what they could do. Um, they're great and they can actually do a lot more than they could back then. But there was, you know, I knew that we could do more with HTML and uh, have it be responsive with HTML. Um, and so it would automatically adapt, which at that time, Rise didn't exist, which Rise adapts and changes, uh, responds mm -hmm. to the uh, different device sizes. But it was mostly just kind of, I think, Storyline 1 and Captivate at the time, which I don't even think uh, Captivate did responsive at that time. But but we wanted to push the limit a little bit more. And we've, we found that with uh, Storyline, you know, I still love Storyline. I still teach on it, you know, all the time. But we found that with Storyline, some of the things that we were trying to do, like submit several questions at one time to the LMS, wasn't possible. That was just, uh, and that wasn't a restriction in SCORM in any way. That was actually a restriction that was placed by Storyline. The, the workaround and the evolution to get to working with this HTML is I, in my team that I was overseeing, I kind of had to shift the roles a little bit. And so instructional designers were doing their own developments with Storyline, but I shifted it to where the instructional designers would focus more on the storyboards and kind of being the overall architect of the uh, course and, and everything. 
But I hired a couple different web developers who would focus on the custom work. And I did some myself as well. Um, but those web developers are, are very familiar with APIs, which SCORM and XAPI are APIs, basically. So we hired somebody who is very familiar with that. And so we were able to uh, develop our own framework. We started looking at different things like jQuery Mobile uh, that would handle kind of the page-to-page navigation. Uh, there's other frameworks out there called Swipe, like one is Swiper as well, that will like make the page slide from uh, one page to another. There's like Animate CSS that animates content in. So there's all these different frameworks that we could really do anything we wanted to. There was like, you know, the limitations of Storyline and Captivate all of a sudden with custom HTML opened up and we had all these different possibilities. And it's not to say that we don't need an instructional designer. We still needed that architect, the learning experience person to oversee it. And we would just go in and we would develop specifically for that in HTML. So, and some of the results for those of those courses were amazing. So we, I mean, we won awards on those as well, not to brag, but, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. we pushed the limit. We wanted to push the limit a little bit. And to this day, and that was like, I think seven years ago to this day, those courses still stand up in my opinion. Yeah. You know, you mentioned possibilities open up when you, you create a custom course in HTML and not be limited by an authoring tool, even though authoring tools are, they have their benefits and they're obviously easier to use. You know, I've, I've always wondered this thought and I'm, I'm curious to get your opinion. Uh, why do you think that web development and mobile development is underrated in our industry? I think it's, you know, initial thought is like, it, it seems there's the perception and that it seems too hard. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. at one demo fest when I was showing one of the custom courses um, to different people. I remember when I showed it to them, this one per- person in particular was pretty impressed by them. They're like, oh, that's a great course. That looks great. And they're like, how did you build it? And so I pulled up the code at that time and I'm like, okay, we used HTML. And their immediate reaction was like, oh, I don't do HTML. And they just kind of immediately walked away at that point. And I, and, and I think that's the initial reaction. But what I try to teach my students is you know, a lot of what you're working with in HTML is the same thing as Storyline. So you're working with variables. So if you're going to build content in Storyline, you have to be familiar with variables, which is a storage, a piece of storage location, right? Uh, some, some information that you're storing. Then you're working with triggers, and those triggers have different elements to it as well. Like when the trigger happens, does it happen when the user clicks? Does it happen when the page loads? Does it happen when the page, you know, right before the page unloads or you know, you go to another page. So those are different things that are also inside of coding. So it's just the the syntax of how you write inside of JavaScript of, okay, when a page loads and an event or when a button gets clicked, here's what happens. And you're basically giving inside of code, you're giving the um, different elements on the stage directions, uh, commands. Okay, when this clicks, show this. When this clicks, hide this. That's the same thing that you're doing inside of Storyline is when you click on something, you add a trigger to hide, to show. And then same thing with like the CSS and HTML. Uh, When you're learning a new application, the first thing that you do is you go in and you learn the different objects that you can work with. Well, that's HTML basically is these different kind of default objects that you can work with. And then the next thing you do is, okay, what can I do to stylize those? So that's where you use the ribbon up on top in Storyline to change the colors, to change the size. And that's exactly what CSS is, is you're changing the colors, you're changing the size uh, size and different things like that. So 
you're really mm-hmm. doing the same thing, whether you're doing it inside of Storyline or you're doing it inside of HTML and CSS or JavaScript. I think there's this realization that a lot of people have when they f- first start using authoring tools, they don't understand that in the end, everything you do, like you're describing, is, code. is published to code. It creates code. And once you know that, it's it's a little bit liberating because then you realize you can kind of manipulate things even further than you are with the WYSIWYG editor that, that most authoring tools have. Yeah, I think that's kind of where it's empowering a little bit. Because even if you still stick mm-hmm. with Storyline, which I do, I still create content in Storyline, um, you know that once you hit that kind of roadblock of like, oh, can it do this? Um, the answer typically is like, well, it, you can work around it and you can add some custom JavaScript. You can do, I mean, there's, it opens up a, ho- a whole lot more possibilities uh, when you are willing to kind of explore that and, and dive into the code a little bit more. Right. And I think that's kind of been the struggle, honestly, with um, the adoption of X API is um, because it's been mostly code base up to this point. Um, a lot of people have shied away from it. There's some people that have embraced it. I mean, it's gotten some adoption that's gotten uh, a lot of people using it. But now the, the reason why I got so excited with this last storyline update is now I, I feel like with that kind of um, trigger, the wizard that they have, even though it's not perfect, but um, with the wizard, it's it's a good step forward because now it makes it a little bit easier. However, it's still limited, which means that um, if you wanted to do more and you wanted to add on to it, you do need to know a little bit more code for it. Yeah, I think um, XAPI, I think there's a lot of reasons why it didn't get adopted as quickly as, as it perhaps should have. One of the reasons I think it, it has a marketing problem. So you think about web search. If, if we were to sell people on the idea of Googling something back in the mid 90s and we started off by talking to them about you know, SQL databases and, and things like that, they would really have a hard time understanding it. Whereas people were first introduced to web searches just by going to some site like yahoo.com or something, AltaVista, you know, back in the 90s and just right. doing a web search and seeing the results come up and, oh, okay, I get it. I think XAPI kind of has a similar problem where, you know, we want to start out talking about it really technically, whereas really the the main benefit is learner analytics and being able to track and report more meaningful um, activities. Right. Which is, which is for sure an instructional side. I mean, that's where, you know, even if you're not the one doing the XAPI code, there's still that element for the learning experience designer, instructional designer, or whatever you want to call it. Um, to be the architect over that whole um, content because they're the ones that are like, they're the ones, in my opinion, that are trying to solve the problem. Is like we have this issue that, you know, we feel like training might be a good solution for, but how are we going to know if it's actually uh, effective? How are we going to know if what we created does the job or not? And really XAPI or, is the answer to that. I mean, SCORM could do basics it could do like start and complete so you know if somebody's actually completed something but do you know if they really interacted with it do you know if they watched the entire video at what point did they leave the video that's where xapi gives you more insights and and the benefit is there but up to this point yeah i I agree with you it's been more marketed as like oh um it's code so that means the really intense uh, e-learning developers will be the only ones to really work with it but the ones that understand the benefit and the, the data that comes in, I think, is where they can make the uh, real big 
change and, and impact to the learning solutions. Yeah. And it requires people to be on the same page and be intentional with it all, right. which uh, sadly is, is lacking in some training departments. Some of the places I've, I've worked or work with, they just don't have that level of intention from all the different members in, in the training team to be able to track and measure things like that. So, yeah, I remember when I was first starting out with XAPI, this was years ago in my organization, I, I tried to explain to people the benefits of it. And it took a lot of back and forth and it took a lot of uh, conversations of why, why do we need it? Why do we even try this? And people, a lot of the times were just like, eh, we're okay. I mean, all we really need to know is if they completed it, but they didn't see the benefits beyond that. So what a lot of what my time was originally when I was first uh, starting out with XAPI was basically just showing people the potential and coming up with different examples and I describe it as like giving them a taste or giving them a little bit of the candy of, of the candy store to kind of entice them to come to get, you know, whatever they wanted to from there. Some of the stakeholders that finally caught the vision, especially when we come, we came up with uh, different examples and then they bought off on it. And then we were able to implement several different courses that were just fully X API. And then one that was our largest one went out to, um, I think still to this day, there's about a million users that are taking it that are, they don't have to go to a learning management system or anything like that. They just go to a URL and it tracks all through XAPI. So. Yeah, that was going to be my question, Jeff, is now that with Storyline adopting it kind of natively that it's a function in there. Do you think now, and to Joe's point about the marketing problem, yes, I agree with that too, but do you think we'll see the death of the LMS? I don't know if we'll see the death of the LMS because there is one still big hurdle with the implementation that Storyline um, pushed out. Um, the LMS, I mean, you can create XAPI content. You can track very custom content with this latest version. However, right now it has to, to capture the actor. Because you think about XAPI as three different things. You have the actor, who the person is. You have the verb, what action did they do? And then you have the objects that basically describe. So, you know, Jeff Bat downloaded a PDF on ethics. So that's that's a statement that comes through those different parts. Um, so you have to capture who the person is. And with the update that Storyline just released, they allow you to control the verb and what action did they do. They allow you to control the object and describe exactly what they did. But right now, the easiest implementation that they introduced was you have to actually upload this content to an LMS still. Now that LMS could um, be able to capture XAPI statements. So it does CMI5, which basically is just all XAPI reporting, which an LMS can, some LMS can, or some LMSs can do. Um, but if your LMS can't do that, you can still publish to an LMS and it will capture who the person is. Uh, but it will send it over to another learning record store, but it has to know who that person is from the LMS itself. So we're still, with this implementation, we're still kind of tied to that. However, they do have the ability to just report over to an external learning record store, but you have the biggest hurdle, which is what I was getting to, and that is capturing who the person is. So you still have to be able to do that, but that's where it still, at this point, still requires a little bit of custom code. So it requires what's called a query string that when you launch the course, it basically passes through who the person is. But you have to be able to still capture who that person is, whether it through be through like a, an initial launch page where you have them enter in their name and their email, 
where it's behind like a sing- single sign-on, which is Okta. Um, and so there's still some of that custom work that has to happen if you just truly want the content to live any- anywhere. Um, and so I, if if Storyline can figure out a better way for that to capture who the person is internally, I think we're going to see even greater adoption for external content. But until then, we're still kind of tied to this um, learning management system. However, I, I, I still feel like as far as systems go, I still feel like a, a learning experience platform is more of the direction where the industry is going, which is more of this central learning hub as well. So there's this perennial question that comes up, and I'd like to get your opinion on it, which is, should instructional designers need to code? What do you say? I think they don't need to be the ones to actually code, but I think everyone needs to understand coding concepts. Um, and what I mean by coding concepts is because I, I think we have this idea and I've seen this a lot where instructionals feel, uh, instructional designers feel like they have to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of this one man band shop is the way that, the way that I think of it. And, you know, oftentimes there are, you know, instructional designers that really are their, their own training department. So they're the only ones that are creating training. Um, and so in those cases, they, they may have to do everything. However, um, I think if you really fight for it and you make your case for it, um, you could get other resources for, for you to do things beyond just, you know, your standard e-learning tools as well. But uh, I've seen instructional designers that, you know, going back to this example where we, we kind of shifted where instructional designers were just focusing on um, storyboarding and coming up with the content and worrying about the instructional strategy and stuff like that. Um, the problem that we saw with that is when they were working with developers, they didn't understand development concepts. So, or even like, okay, we're going to have three tabs. One tab is going to say two words in the text. Another tab is going to say five words. And another tab is going to have a whole sentence. So visually that doesn't work because now you have one button that basically has two words and it can, it'll be a small one. And then you have another button that's a little bit longer. And then you have another button that's got to be really tall in order to fit the, the whole sentence. And so just things like that where they didn't think through like UX experience, they didn't think through or they uh, would give the developer, okay, I want this tab interaction. And can you give that to me tomorrow? Right. And it's like, uh, well, it's going to take a little bit more time than tomorrow. <laughs> so it's those, those things where the, that conflict kept happening is because they didn't understand really what it took to develop those types of experiences. But the instructional designers that at least understood that type of concept and understood understood development, those that relationship between the developer and the instructional designer was like they were able to create magic. I mean, seriously, they were able to uh, work really well together and produce some of the best learning experiences that I've seen is uh, with that relationship. So if you're an instructional designer and you're able to at least talk the talk, I think you're going to go a lot farther without having to be the one that knows the code. So you don't have to go in and learn Python and then don't have to go and learn Java and then Swift and all the different languages in order to create these types of experiences. Right. Yeah. Well said, you know, you talked about the the one man band person or one person band example, where it's just one person that has to kind of manage everything for an organization, but especially for larger organizations, having specialized roles, especially if it's like a centralized learning function for, for a big organization, you would think you would see someone who is more specialized in video and someone who's more specialized in development yeah. and things like that. 
but that hasn't been my experience. They just seem to want as many instructional designers that can do as much of those things as possible. And it's often just asking too much of people. Like 10 years ago, I kind of saw for my career development that I would really stand apart if I extended my e-learning development side to also be instructional design. Because I saw that if I could do both of those roles, it it would be something that was kind of uncommon. And here we are 10 years later, and that's almost the expectation. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, I mean, you're, it seems like everyone's looking for that unicorn that can do everything. Um, so it's, but it's, I don't think that works very well. I mean, one person doing everything. Um, I I've seen oftentimes where somebody was the one testing the course and then when the course was released, they, because you're the one testing it and you didn't have anybody else test it, uh, you often solve problems with it afterwards where you then had to do an update real quick or something like that. You need that different pair of eyes to look at it. Yeah. Or even that process with different people. I mean, the person who can do video better, um, then, you know, not expecting the instructional designer to be the one to also do video and and then also do coding and then also know how to, you know, manage the LMS and be, I mean, there's teams or LMSs that take full-time teams in order to run as well. I mean, it's, it's that one person that we're expecting to do everything is, I think, runs into a lot of problems. But if you're hiring eight instructional designers, for example, you have room for eight instructional designers, maybe only hire six instructional designers and hire a developer or an LMS administrator or you know, maybe even less and then do like uh, a video expert or exactly. something like that. Some of the contents that you can create from that will just, I mean, value your your team would actually be a lot more valued and that I think the reputation that sometimes learning has um, is because, you know, that one person that's trying to do everything, when you're trying to do everything, you're doing a lot of things very badly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not badly, but you don't have a lot of time to focus on stuff. So you're doing them quickly. And so I I think that's why we get a lot of courses that aren't, you know, as good as they could be. But if you have an instructional designer that's doing a storyboard, hands it off to a, a video person, and then they go start on the next storyboard, you have the video person creating the video and then you have the um, developer coming in and creating the contents and then instructional designers just kind of checking in and seeing how things are going and making sure that it's instructionally sound. I mean, that's to me the perfect solution. Yeah, And, and plus you get so many diverse perspectives and viewpoints that, that they, people would be able to bring stuff up that just a team of instructional designers wouldn't like uh, someone who really knows development right. would be able to say, yeah, we can fully get invested in this authoring tool, but, we're kind of signing away our, our future ability to do anything different. And we're, we're really vesting ourselves into this tool and needing at least one license, probably more for the foreseeable future. Whereas if we create something custom, we have the ability with probably just a set of open source tools. Uh, as long as we have the know-how, we can always uh, update this by ourselves and not need anything proprietary. So that's just one of many considerations that don't even come into play when you don't bring those perspectives to the table. I think I usually ask a question because I I teach as as an adjunct at a university here as well. And these are instructional designers that are coming in um, to their master's degree. You know, this is like one of the first classes that they take. And the, the question that I ask is, I'm like, where is digital learning now? Where do you learn? Um, and Oftentimes it's like, okay, well, I go to YouTube, I, I go to, I listen to podcasts, I, I go 
um, or my mobile app or something like that. And to me, those are all different types of locations where this learning may be happening. And, and are you expecting uh, an instructional designer to go know how to develop for all of them? And you, you think about AR and VR, are, are we now having to be the ones to go in and create AR experiences and VR experiences and, and then also mobile apps and Swift and other things like that? Um, and I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's something that you should expect an instructional designer to do. I think really their skill set and what they're trained to do is to think about the instructional strategy and the instructional vision and, and content and other things like that. So this kind of frees them up to do what they're trained to do and then allows, and then just pulls in resources when needed to develop for AR or VR or other things. So. Yeah, I agree with that, Jeff. And a question I was going to ask you, because I know you have a ton of experience, not only with adjuncting, but also you're super successful on Udemy and other platforms is, you know, I'm sure you've seen it too. There's just a ton of people that found learning and development within the last year or two. Um, Specifically, I'm thinking, you know, teachers looking to transition into a new career path. And while it's wonderful that there's this many folks interested, I see a lot of people focusing so much on the technology of, hey, I can build something in Articulate Rise. Am I an instructional designer now? Um, What are are some tips? Because you've talked a little bit about the strategy or whatever. For for folks looking to transition that maybe uh, want to learn the technology, what would be some of the things you would give them for advice kind of on the front end, like of the instructional strategy piece? Yeah. Um, So I I come at this a little bit differently because like I mentioned, I'm coming in as a web developer that came into this realm. So I actually was not trained as an instructional designer. Um, I've picked up things, you know, over the 10 plus years as well. So to transition from one kind of field to another field, in my opinion, I mean, it's doable. I mean, if someone feels like they can do better as an instructional designer, I mean, because they don't get paid well as a teacher, I mean, like, I'm all for that. And I think that's really what I get passionate about is I, I really feel like somebody can pick up different skills if they spend the time and they spend um, the effort to do it. Now, as far as like someone who is coming into this, I mean, oftentimes, I, I had a conversation last week with a teacher that was just wanting to uh, get better at online teaching. And so they were talking to me about, um, you know, some of the tools that they could do, but I, I could tell that they were very new. They were brand new into any type of development at, at all. Um, and so, so the, some of the things that I was talking to them about is just, you know, start out small. Remember when I was learning Flash, I, you know, I spent probably way too much time just um, making something animate. When it, when you clicked on it, it would animate from one side of the stage to the other side of the stage. But to me, that was a win. That was something that, you know, I got really excited about. I went and showed my wife, and I'm like, oh, look at this. And she's like, uh huh. I'm like, it's 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 something just starting out small and just doing those small steps and, you know, spending the time and effort to do it. Um, you can pick up on it, but. I think people look at like, you know, I have to climb this mountain to get to this point and they get overwhelmed because the mountain is so high. They don't, um, they don't consider that, you know, to just climb the mountain, you have to first start, you know, actually walking. You have to get to the, the base of the mountain and then you start going up little by little. You don't have to sprint up to the mountain. And so I don't know if that's a good analogy, but that's just something that I thought of is it, it takes a while to do. 
I think it's a great analogy. And along with that, I think a big part that's missing from the conversation of helping people move from, say, a role from teaching to instructional design is kind of to your point about it's you're taking little steps along the way. You also take little roles. Uh, you start off with an entry level role most often. So to kind of come in completely fresh and expect to get like a, a a nice role, maybe even a senior role, I think the more feasible thing is probably to start off in some kind of entry level role and just get your feet wet and improve over time so that then you can turn around and either get promoted from within or or find your next role someplace else. Yeah. I'm glad you said that, Joe, and not me. I'm sick of getting the tomatoes <laughs> thrown at me on LinkedIn. Well, I mean, I'll just, just using, yeah, just using my background. I mean, I worked years at a place that was entry level. So it happens, but you, you, you have to, mo most often you have to put in the work and the time and the effort to get there. It doesn't just happen overnight. So what yeah. I would just tell people is if, if you're coming into this field, just be patient and know that you may need to put in some time in a role that, that isn't 100% where you want to be initially. My first role was at, was at Amazon as an instructional designer in I think people have visions of grandeur, but little did they know that when I was in that role, most of what I did was LMS administration. But yet a lot of people are like, I don't want to touch the LMS, but I knew it was an opportunity. So I love that you called that out, Joe. Yeah, they're trying to jump to the mountain without actually going up the, the trail or something. So they're trying to get to the end point. And I think that's that's part of like why I hate multi-level marketing schemes. It's because they, they're promising. I remember I ran out of gas in um, one point or one time, this is like years ago, and somebody got out and they helped me push to a gas station, which I was very you know, thankful for. But then they, they started pitching a multi-level marketing thing where they're like, you know, I'm able to retire in five years. I'm able to do this. It's because it's they, they get these promises of, you know, this is going to happen. Your life is going to be so much better and you're going to get this, you know, job that's amazing and stuff like that. And I wonder if some of these... Um, uh, people out there, you know, not to call names. I'm not, I don't like doing that. But I, I wonder if that's, they're kind of going off of these promises that if I take this course or if I do this, all of a sudden I'll get a job offer that's, you know, amazing. And it, it, that's not the way it works. I mean, it's, you're going to have to put in the work, you're going to have to put in the time. Um, when I started out in e learning, I was a sales coordinator. So I was actually calling people to schedule demos for salespeople. And then I moved into a salesperson where I was actually demoing the software. And that's where I really actually started loving teaching is because I was teaching people how to use our software. And uh, from there, I was learning Flash. And I spent hours, hours and hours trying to learn how to do Flash work. I remember there's times where, and I was in school too, but there was times where I spent up you know, until 2 a.m. just learning how to program and going through like lynda.com tutorials and I went through so many lynda.com tutorials. And so it's just it, putting in that time to then eventually get uh, an opportunity that popped up where I was able to then program or create templates for this e-learning software company that I was working with. And so I started transitioning out of sales and more transitioning to, into development. And um, it was still hard to completely remove myself from sales because that's kind of what my, my company saw me as at the time. But um, that's where the opportunity at eLearning Brothers popped up is where it was just all development. So I was now just getting into what I was learning about, which was this development time. But it's just um, 
just step by step, I think, is just, you know, spending the time to learn it, spending the time to uh, create examples and to show those examples or going to conferences and showing what you can do at conferences and showing the different uh, sample work that you've been working on. Um, that's a great way to get exposure. But then just, you know, like you're like Joe, you were saying is, you know, get the entry level um, gigs that could then lead up to other ones as well. So, yeah. So, Jeff, it's been great chatting with you. If people want to connect or follow you, where can they go to do so? You can find me on Twitter. So Jeff Batts uh, underscore LD. I changed it. I think it was Jeff Bat Learn that I had it, but I changed it to Jeff Bat underscore LD. Uh, LinkedIn as well. So if you just search Jeff Bat, uh, my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash learning dojo, uh, learning dojo.ninja is my website as well. Awesome. And I, I really encourage people to check those out. And we will put links to those in the show notes for this episode. Jeff, thank you for chatting with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.